Good morning. Is it morning? Yes. <laughs> While we're settling in, I just wanted to get an idea of who my audience is, other than amazing-looking people that God has uh, poured his image into. <laughs> um, those of you who are kind of in your preclinical training, sort of undergrad of any type, pre-med, pre-nursing, pre-whatever, just raise your hand. So quite a number of you. It's a good time to be engaged in that and to hear about MedSend, which is one of the organizations I represent. How many people are currently in their clinical training, uh, med school? Yeah. So almost as many in that. How about, and of, of those clinical training, how many are in residency? Okay. So it, it's, it's really kind of in the clinical training on your way to that. How many people have already engaged with a sending organization or have some idea where the Lord might be calling you? A handful, yeah. How many people have educational debt? (laughs) I thought maybe that's why you came to this. Yeah. Um, One small disclaimer uh, is that I think sometimes people, I've had two two times, I've done this two times before, and then I did one on on uh, Thursday, and some people think this is about fundraising for their project, you know, to say, oh, I want you to tell me how to raise money for my hospital in, in, uh, in Nigeria, and I, yeah, that's not what this is about. I can talk about that, but off, off, off the, that's off this topic, and as my wife will confirm, I'm not a financial planner, <laughs> so if you're here to have me tell you how to invest your money and how to do financial planning and debt stuff, um, I'm the wrong person. You don't want to take advice from me. <laughs> Just look at my bank accounts and you'll know. But um, I'm here really to talk about removing debt as an obstacle to missionary service, both here domestically and abroad. And I'm representing MedSend because I'm a big fan of MedSend because they lifted $96,000 of debt off my shoulders when the Lord called us to go to Malawi in uh, 2000. And it's a huge part of my story about how God confirmed his calling by providing means for us to pursue it. And, you know, I think I'll I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. And I think the key thing whenever you're considering going to the field, uh, my hope is you haven't come here to think, well, maybe I'll have to do, be a missionary in order to get rid of my debt. That's not a good plan. <laughs> it, you could make more money here and get rid of your debt faster as long as you don't get sucked into the more is better uh, American culture. Um, but the key, the key thing is really calling. And it's God who calls us and it's God who provides all that we need. And I've just been amazed at the stories that I hear about people in their journey to come and serve the Lord long-term and short-term, that God is the one that provides all of their needs. And, and the end of the story should always be God receiving glory. And, and we struggle uh, with pride as missionaries sometimes because you come home from the field there, it's like, oh, missionaries are like a whole different class of Christians. And it's like, I can assure you that I'm not and we're not. <laughs> In some ways, missionaries are some of the most difficult Christians you'll meet, <laughs> people who would do this. Um, this was a, a picture of my family. What I should have done is put a picture uh, now because my son, who was seven when we went to Malawi, is now a father of two, and my daughter is out of the house, and we have added one more 
Since then, one of my, one of my patients uh, in Malawi that I fell in love with and I couldn't send her off to an orphanage. Sometimes I want to send her back, but not, most of the time not. She's a teenager, so you understand that. But we, we responded really, I think, I would say it was a very much a push-pull for us to respond to God's call to go to Africa. I was kind of tired of American medicine and the politics and the economics. We had some local, local issues where I was practicing in our multi-specialty group, people fighting over a bigger piece of a shrinking pie. And it's like, this is not why. I loved patient care, but all that stuff I was really frustrated with. And, and God had placed us in a church, really, that had a very, very much a heart for the lost and a heart for suffering people. And I think if I wasn't in so much debt, I would have said, forget being a doctor, I want to be a pastor. And yet the Lord used that opportunity and even a crisis in our business that led me to say, you know, Lord, I'll do anything but not this. Please don't make me do this any longer. And I remember I was standing, it was one of the few times, probably maybe five or six times when I'm praying and I really feel like God gave a word into my mind. It wasn't a you know, audible word or a written word or anything. But he said, okay, I was praying, Lord, anything but this. And he said, okay, keep your eyes open. And that very night, we went to a friend's house for her birthday party. Her husband had grown up as a missionary, and her, his, his parents had just come back from this little tiny country called Malawi that I had just heard about. I never heard, had heard about Malawi, but I was on his board. He just had an orphan project that he was trying to get started in Malawi. And his parents came back saying, we were at this Bible college, and they started a clinic, hoping that one of their friends would come and run the clinic. But now they have this beautiful clinic, but no one to run it. And I had shared my prayer experience with my wife that, okay, well, the Lord kind of said, keep your eye open. And someone that night said, there's a clinic in Africa that needs a doctor. That didn't seem like a coincidence. And both just even the fact that we would not run away from that, uh, meant that God was starting to work on our heart. And it, and it happened, actually, that my father-in-law, who's an x-ray technician, was going to this clinic to teach them about how to use their, their x-ray machine. And so I thought, well, I guess I need to at least go and check out this opportunity. So I went on this short-term trip. It, had been, it was my second short-term trip. The first short-term trip was, uh, was uh, I, in retrospect, an example of how not to do short-term missions. <laughs> short-term missions play an important role in the long-term uh, work that God is doing, but there are ways to do it, and there are ways not to do it. This first one was an example of how not to do it, and then the second one was really very much to explore the possibility of going to this one clinic. And, and my wife, uh, while I was on this trip, was reading a book by David Thompson, who actually was one of the founders of the surgical program called PAX and was a doctor in, in in Cameroon, he was, she was reading his biography about literally chopping his way through the jungle and taking a raft across a river to a small little hut that they called a, a medical clinic and turning that into a hospital. And then I'm in Africa uh, in this poverty and dirt and dust and terrible hospitals and crowded uh, markets and thinking, I don't know that I could bring my family to this place. And my wife reading about the jungles is saying, I think God's calling us to Africa. <laughs> so got home and we prayed about it. And actually things got worse with our clinic and we decided we're going. Uh, during that trip, I heard two things that were really key. One was uh, I was clearly outside of my medical uh, skills there 
And on the way home, I saw someone wearing a T-shirt that said Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. And I thought, School of Tropical Medicine, I would need to do that. And then someone had mentioned MedSend as an organization that could pay educational debt. So I think the, the Internet had just been invented uh, by Al Gore and was working. So I looked it up. I wrote, uh, I wrote to them. And the person that answered my email... I wrote, I wrote to Medsen, and the founder responded, Dr. Tapazian, uh, and, and said, well, we, we could support you to go to Malawi, but um, you'd have to go with a sending organization. That's how Medsen works. We want to make sure, they want to make sure people are well sent and supported. And they connected me with SIM, which became our sending organization, and, uh, and then we applied to Medsen. We were approved. And they began paying on our loans as soon as we went to tropical medicine training and then a couple months later to the field. And it was just an important uh, avenue for us to get connected with SIM because then they became the rock that helped us get through some tough times with the first place we went to. It was a great place to land, but very unhealthy governance. And and, uh, during that time, though, Within months of arri- within uh, a week of arriving, oops, I thought I took out that animation. Within a week of arriving, um, I well, we we landed on Sunday, and I, I I visited the clinic on Monday, and then I started work on Tuesday, which I would not recommend. But I was seeing in the clinic every day, 70% of the patients I saw were coming in with late stage HIV. Many of them very late, like this gentleman that died just about an hour after that picture in the middle bottom from cryptococcal meningitis. And I had learned in my tropical medicine training about HIV, and I had an understanding of how to diagnose it and what the treatments were. But none of these treatments were available in Malawi. We had a rapid test for HIV, and that was about it. And as a doctor, Western doctor, we're trained, you know, to, you don't want the diagnosis, you want the truth. You've got to ask the hard questions, do the test, and break the news. But this was a setting where the news of HIV was literally, literally a death sentence because they, you could treat some of the infections. We had some antibiotics, TB medicines, but you, we had no access to HIV treatment because it was 1000 to $2,000 a month back in, in 2000. But... Um, uh, and, and so, but I, I was pursuing the truth. <laughs> After a while, I mean, early on, I would say I would come home just exhausted. I never had diagnosed someone with HIV before, and I was doing it two, three times a day there. And <clears throat> within a week of being there, I, I met uh, a lady at church who was the head of UNAIDS, which is the UN Agency for HIV, and she invited me to the first ever meeting with the Ministry of Health and some international experts, one of whom that I met that day is now the head of Center for Disease Control, Dr. Bob Redfield. And we had Bob Redfield and the son of Jonas Salk, who invented the the virus, over to our house for spaghetti. (laughs) And I remember that story very well. And um, at this meeting, they were talking about the availability of antiretroviral therapy and the fact that it was coming down in cost and would be made by generic companies. Got us ex- and, and they talked about the dramatic reduction in mortality when you put people on ARVs. And we were excited. The second day, Dr. Redfield was proposing to do directly observed therapy, where you have a health worker who comes to their house, gives them the pill, watches them take it, 
Because if you don't take it religiously, you will develop drug resistance, and then you've got a big problem that has no cheap drugs. And they were also suggesting kind of the U.S. model for monitoring liver function and kidney function and all those things. We didn't have any of those tests available. Only 10% of the hospitals in Malawi could deliver what they call the essential health package, you know, safe deliveries, immunizations, treating common childhood illnesses. How could we do an advanced program for treating HIV? Um, I was the newest person in the country, and because I was there and I was a doctor, I was invited to the follow-up meeting, and I was interested because I was seeing people dying from HIV. So my participation was more as a learner, and under, really, the tutelage of this amazing guy, Dr. Um, Tony Harries, who's a public health TB specialist who was leading the ARV program, that group then went on to actually write a strategy using what we call a public health approach to HIV, where you're using primarily nurses to diagnose and treat and start people on antiretroviral therapy, even in the most remote places, using only a finger stick uh, HIV test. And so this was sort of an example of someone who knows Africa, saying we cannot do the U.S. model. Uh, we, have to, we have to do this in a contextualized way. And he did it in a way that also was very collaborative. I was invited because I was interested, not because I was an expert. I was interested, but we had people from UNICEF who were there advocating for pediatric treatment. We had some universities were there. We had USAID and CDC that were there supporting this process, WHO that was providing at least the, the guidelines that WHO had come up with. And when we came out with a plan, it was a plan that everybody owned and was designed for Malawi. And it was such a great example of me of, a, of, of the role of public health and health systems planning to actually implement that program. It ended up being one of the largest programs subs, uh, uh, funded by the Global Fund. I think it was $50 million was our first grant that we got as a country. And we started this public health approach to HIV that it became known as a model for, for all of Africa. And, and I was able, I would say, to be uh, an observer and somewhat a participant, but more a learner in that process. During that time, things were sort of not so, going so well at this Bible college clinic with the governance and the commitment to HIV. And I had met all these amazing Malawians. And we decided actually to start our own non Malawian nonprofit to focus on HIV treatment. Found in an abandoned IV fluids factory that our supporters helped to purchase and begin little by little remodeling this into a, an HIV clinic using a model, a public-private model, where we had HIV care that was given for free to anyone who wanted to come to the clinic. And then we had a private clinic that was a general clinic that we would generate money to help support the HIV work. That became uh, really the clinic for the UN, and, and we had all kinds of different little business things that the Lord brought up. It wasn't me, but the Lord brought these business opportunities. And then a large USAID grant to train uh, really throughout all Malawi on how to do HIV care. That provided resources as well as materials, helped us grow our staff. Uh, from the very beginning, my goal was that this would be a Malawian organization and is now being run by a, a four foot ten Malawian internal medicine doctor, lady doctor, and our CEO on the left, the CFO on the left, is a almost six foot uh, Malawian woman, 
doctor in, in uh, organizational development, and they're doing a fantastic job running this without me. As the Lord called us home, called us home, that doesn't sound good. As the Lord <laughs> returned us back to the U.S. to care for family, for, for parents who were, who were struggling and to launch our kids, uh, Partners in Hope has been left in really good hands and has a Malawian board. I'm a, I'm a member of the board, but not the chairman. I'm there as a, mostly I provide money <laughs> and, and connections. But they're doing a fantastic job. You know, throughout Africa, we, we tend to think, oh, Africa is so broken, they need us to come and fix them. They're just brilliant people in Africa who have the training, have the knowledge, and the passion to make these things happen. We need to explore w- different ways of partnering that aren't so authoritarian and paternalistic. And we need to say, we, they still need resources. I mean, even... Services that, that care for the poor in our country need resources. They need philanthropy. They need uh, grants, those kind of things to help them, help them go. So it was just an amazing experience. So really, I had a very strong call for HIV that helped me start this. But then the Lord then replaced that with a really strong call for strengthening health systems and especially helping to promote national Champions who really, I mean, if we think about discipleship, what we should be doing with church planting, you know, you don't just sort of run a church forever as a missionary. Ideally, you, you preach the good news, people come to know the Lord, they get discipled and mature in faith, they have a mature church, and then that mature church is actually then sending out people again. And so in the mission hospital sector, sometimes we get stuck in, because they need money, they clearly need us to lead. And that's not true. There's plenty of great leaders, and we, but we have to develop them. We have to give them systems that, that maybe they couldn't afford, but to, to, to allow them to lead and actually focus more on developing Christian healthcare leaders and boosting their vision than going over and doing care. And, and I, the thing I'm excited about, and you can nod your head if you think this is true about your generation under, we'll say under, 36, <laughs> uh, that your generation gets partnership and they get and they want to go and train even more than care. And I don't know if that's true. That's a good sense that I get. I see some nods. But I would say as, as missions, we're learning that. Uh, I, I would say I, I take it you guys may be from India. India. India did this. I mean, it was sort of forced upon them because missionaries were kicked out and no money was coming in. And there's some amazing centers in India that have risen up because, not because missionaries were there doing it, but because local people who had a heart for the Lord and had resources, many champions that helped places like Valour succeed, were, were Indian champions that said, hey, we need this. We can do this. And, and some of these are the best centers in the world in India. And it's not, it, it was maybe, may have been started by missions, but it was, it was the nationals that took them. As we think about God calling us to go and serve as missionaries, either domestically or abroad, um, you know, the, the key thing is really understanding that this is a calling, much more than a, an occupation. Uh, the, really, the word vocation is from, from the Latin for call, vocar. And to me, that is, that, you know, it, it often isn't so clear to say, okay, I, you know, was writing on the wall and I had to go. 
But in understanding that this is why you're there is because God has called you there. It's critical to you being able to stay. We started this large nonprofit organization that then was actually had a lot of money that was coming from USAID, and I was running it. And I remember I had a lady who was a Hindu who was there uh, with UCLA doing a rotation, and she said, well, why don't you – I was telling her about the model of the hospital and the church built this hospital, and I'm here as a missionary. She says, with all these big grants, why don't you just put your salary on one of those grants and not have to be, you know, in her mind, begging for money for your own subsistence. <laughs> she saw my house. She knew I didn't get paid a lot. But uh, – and, and it's like – and I thought about it. And it just really was so clear to me. And I said to her, as I was even realizing it myself, it's like, well, if this was a job, I wouldn't be here because this is a really sucky job. <laughs> it's hard, and it doesn't pay well, and, and I'm away from my family, all that stuff. The only reason I'm here is because God has called me here, and the body of Christ is making it possible for me to be here. And I have an obligation to God as well as the body of Christ to serve here. Uh, and it's not about me having a good job that's way well paid. And, and that's the clear thing. I mean, it, God always provides resources, but the key thing is really understanding that it's God that has called you, and it's not, not just a job. Um, as you come to a conference like this, you hear all kinds of things that, that are, you're probably trying to process to say, okay, you, know, you hear about reaching unreached people groups you know, in the 1040 window and going to places where no other places can go. And, and I would confirm that health care people can go into countries where no other people can, no other foreigners can go because most of these places have a desperate need for health care. Even some of the Middle East countries that have tons of money still don't have doctors and nurses. And so there are some great opportunities to do that. Um, there's a lot of great mission hospitals that are doing teaching. That's my main focus is, is teaching hospitals and mission, teaching and mission hospitals in Africa. We need people that, to go over to help to transfer skills uh, to the upcoming healthcare leaders and help these hospitals go better. Some great opportunities for doing community-based care in rural areas that otherwise have no health care but also haven't really been reached with the gospel. Even in places like Kenya and Malawi where I was, very animistic cultures really heavily controlled by witchcraft. They need the gospel. They need liberation. But also they need health care. And so if we look at the model of Christ, Christ fed and healed and preached. And that's what God calls us to do as a model, that it's not just about um, going and just doing good health care and, and being a faithful witness. You go and do health care, and you also tell people about Christ. You don't just go tell people about Christ and say, go and be well fed, and, and I, hope, I hope you don't die. <laughs> you go and meet their needs and you tell them the gospel. And, and often throughout history, we sort of go back and forth as if you have to pick one paradigm or the other rather than recognizing these are one. These are one. If we think about the, the, how, uh, the, the kingdom of God, you want to look at the king. You know, that, that, that the kingdom of God is very much reflective, reflected in the person of Jesus Christ, who clearly had a heart for people who were suffering, but he didn't fix everybody. Couldn't. He's one person. He had a heart for people who were hungry. had a heart for people who were brokenhearted. And that's, if we are really following Christ, we will have that heart. But we will also be telling people about Christ.
Um, I do see still a lot of people who, who think it's maybe 1840 and they want to go out as uh, adventurers, you know, through the jungle and do it on your own. And, and as you think about ways to go, the key thing is not to go alone and go solo. God didn't make us to be that way. Go with someone to send. Sending organizations, there are many of them here, and there's lots of flexibility to go where you need to go. You just find the right organization. There's some organizations that focus on unreached people groups, some more focused on Asia, some on Africa, South, uh, South America. You know, find somebody who can help you in that process to help you prepare, help train you, and help support you while you're on your field. Many people who go sort of as their own independent thing often are missing the opportunity to connect to something that's bigger than themselves. And they often just kill themselves trying to, trying to meet the, in, the immeasurable need around them. Go as partners. It doesn't have to be a formal uh, educate, uh, formal sending organization. Some, there are some church. well, there are many of them that are here. Send, there are many churches. There are some churches that do a great job of sending people. And, but be sure that they have ways of, of making sure that this is God's calling, that you're emotionally prepared, and that you have uh, ad- adequate financial support, that you're supported while you're on the field. Um, I encourage people to, to explore what God may be do- doing um, to send people as teams or to join teams. Um, obviously, there are some places where there's not a critical mass to get more than one. But joining a healthy team, I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. And, and as, you're looking at, as you're looking at places to possibly serve, key thing is listen to God. Sometimes God calls you to do things that don't make sense. But also evaluate the, the, the health of the team and the leadership wherever you go um, because those are the people that will help you stay in a place. Clearly, don't go as a Lone Ranger. <laughs> I love this, uh, this saying, it's an African saying up in Johannesburg Airport. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. You know, and as Americans, our individualistic culture, very much we want to go fast. We want to see results. We want to get things done now, now, now. And we don't take time to build relationship, build consensus, learn culture, learn language, those kind of things that actually help you to go not only far, but also to do things well and do things sensitively that are culturally appropriate. And to recognize that our, our, the people that we're called to, are, we're not called in a, to be their boss, we're called to be their brother and sister in Christ. Organizations do all of these things, you know, screening, placement, orientation. One thing that, that I recognize is I needed training, and, and I, I probably did realize there was areas of training that I needed that I didn't know I needed, like on how to run a hospital, <laughs> but I did tropical medicine training. Um, language learning, I would not understate, I can't, can't understate how important it is to try your best to learn the local language, because learning words is more than just learning words and translating. It's actually learning culture and making close connections that will be part of helping you understand uh, the culture and not violate it, but also help, help you connect with the nationals that you need to connect with. So whenever, however you can, try and, try and uh, connect on a language, heart language basis. Orientation and mentoring, we've shown, actually are the, the key things for longevity, that you can do training, and when you're sitting in a training preparing for the field, you're hearing these things, and it's like, 
okay, okay, I'll try and keep that in mind. But when you get on the field and you realize the actual real-life situations, it's helpful to have someone walking alongside you, listening to you, coaching you through that, giving you advice when you need it, and guiding you through that. And many mission organizations are doing a better job with that part, that they have sometimes even assign them a mentor. Uh, but you can also find your own mentors. And it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who knows that field, but it can be, and that's very helpful. But uh, someone who just will talk you through it. Um, now we'll get a little bit to finances. Sorry, all that was background. <laughs> but <clears throat> being going, it's important to go well, is to understand really the cost of going. And in a lot of ways, this is another argument for promoting nationals because it's a lot less expensive to have a national doctor working in a hospital than it is to send Americans. We're very costly, needy, uh, spoiled people. <laughs> we, things, we need things like electricity and water and uh, sometimes air conditioning, depending on where you go. And I think a lot of people don't really realize how much that really costs. This is sort of a range for a family of four uh, for several different organizations, somewhere between eighty and one hundred fifty thousand a year, just to live abroad and work in these poor settings, and I don't show this to my nationals because it's like, wow, nobody makes that much money here, and it's, uh, we're not saying you make that much money, but all the costs of having health insurance and all the things that that really are part of expectations of us, especially as professionals, that we want those things. Um, this is what it costs to send. This is our sending organization, a specific one. So a family, uh, a smaller family, we had a family of five, and I think we had to raise right around $8,000 a month to be on the field. And, and we got paid about 4000 a month on the field, which was really plenty to live on, but um, it's, it's costly. And uh, the other thing is really understanding that... Uh, when, you, when people send you, they're sending you, not some magically uh, transformed version of you. <laughs> and, you know, it's back to saying, you know, thinking that missionaries are different than sort of regular Christians. They're, we're, they're not. We're not. Wherever you go, there you, there are, there you are. <laughs> all the baggage, all the struggles, all the things that you, you struggle with in your relationship with the Lord and your priorities about finances, all that stuff are going to follow you wherever you go. And so it's, it's important to really first um, recognize what God's calling is and how you can live out that calling right where you are. You don't have to be a missionary to Mali to serve the Lord. Almost every city that, you're working, that you guys live in has a refugee population, has an immigrant population, has an unreached people group represented. If that's your calling, do that. If your calling is really around the underserved and the poor, almost every place has ways that you can serve the poor. Homeless shelters, free clinics, all kinds of things. And, and what I would say, if you, if you look at yourself, and now you know, many of you are in training and you're working many hours and you're studying many hours, you have little, hour, little time, but if you don't find yourself at least being drawn, if not actually participating in caring for the lost and the poor where you are, it's possible God's not, that you're, you're ignoring God's call or that God is not, you're not there yet. Um, because when you go to the field, you don't magically transform into the Apostle Paul. <laughs> you're still the same person. And so it's a, it's a sign of your heart
if you are not having a desire to serve here. And you can create that and seek that and ask God to give you a heart for the poor and to show you where the needs are locally. It may be because you're just too busy to listen. Uh, But if you start listening to God and practicing hearing God's voice and recognizing needs and connecting that, not that you can meet all the needs that you see, but that if you have that eye to say, I'm looking for what God's calling me to do, and I'll do whatever he, he does call me to do. I remember early in my walk with the Lord, I was like trying to listen to the Lord more. And sometimes it's like, okay, well, take a right on Main Street instead of going that way. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense, but you do it. You know, sort of that practice. It may be just your brain being weird. But if you're in a habit of saying, when I feel like God's telling me to do something, I just do it. And then you become the kind of person that God knows he can tell you something and you will do it, even if you're doing some silly things as you're learning. I love the verse that says, the sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. That's how you get to learn God's voice is by reading, by having an outward focus and responding when God tells you to do something, even if it's something that seems silly, like go talk to that guy. I've had several of those things happen, and it's, I'm not, I'm actually, I test as an introvert, although people that know me are surprised. I'm just an outgoing introvert. But, you know, I've had times when I've said, you need to go and pray for that guy. It's like, I don't even know that guy. <laughs> it's like, okay. And all, invariably, when I respond to God's prompting and do it, it's a blessing for them, it's a blessing for me, and it's part of learning how to hear God's voice. So, starting where you are, don't say, oh, when I become a missionary, then I'm going to learn how to hear God's voice. If you don't learn it here, you're not going to learn it there. You're going to be overwhelmed by the need, and you're not going to be able to understand what your role is. But also, another, another kind of dichotomy we often put is secular versus sacred. That somehow, you know, the work that you're doing now in this big private hospital caring for people with heart attacks is not ministry. You know, ministry is, you know, serving the poor in Calcutta. You know, that's sacred, uh, what, uh, what Mother Teresa did. All of the work that we do is sacred. I mean, you could argue that plumbing is a sacred thing. And, and we go in through history about this dichotomy, false dichotomy between there's the sacred and the secular. And we often then want to push the sacred work to the professional people. But God calls all of our work to be sacred. And I think even in heaven, we're going to have work. Why wouldn't we have work? God works. God is a creative God. He's a working God. We're going to work even in heaven. We're not going to sit and play harps and stuff like they show. And every job that you have, right where God has you right now, if you consider your work to be sacred you're going to work differently. You're going to have a different impact and God's going to use you in ways that you couldn't have even imagined that whatever job you're doing now is your ministry. Um, Often as we start (laughs) raising money to go, sometimes it really feels very uncomfortable. I mean, for how many people, as you think about going as a missionary and having to go around and ask people to pay you, give you money, how many people are uncomfortable with that? That's like, eeeh. I don't want to do that. It feels like begging. And I've even had people kind of, well, I don't want to go around begging for money. And that's because, and, and I think that we would need to challenge ourselves to say, well, whose money is it anyways? Is it your money? Is it their money? It's God's money. If you're almost exclusively our support comes from the body of Christ, we're all called to be stewards. Really, we're inviting people to be a part of what God is going to do through us. 
And I, I've supported, I support missionaries as well. And I've never felt like when I'm sending him a check to say, oh, the, this beggar, I'm going to give him money so he goes away. No, it's like, wow, I have an opportunity to be a part of work in Kazakhstan. I never go to Kazakhstan, but I have a friend who's there serving. I want to support him to be there. That's how your supporters will feel. And you're giving them the privilege of really being able to use what God has given them to do what God is calling you to do kind of on their behalf. So it's, it's really seeing them more as a partner in what God is doing rather than just a donor. Uh, you're not begging for money. And, and from their standpoint, it's really more about stewardship. They don't actually own their money either. And they steward God's money. And, and, and phrasing it that way helps you to understand, well, I'm so obligated to this guy and because he's giving me more money than those people. But to really understand this is all God's money and you're inviting them to join you. And it really helps um, as I said before, as you're preparing, really important just to start wherever you are. Start working, start listening to God's voice, start looking for opportunities to minister, and start, start looking for people who could potentially partner with you in either sending you or supporting you while you're there. Um, I remember probably the lowest, if, you, if I had some sort of a spiritual thermometer through my, through my path, you know, second year of medical school, I would have been really low. Um, we had one of our experiences as we went through. We had a daughter who was born with congenital heart disease and, and nearly died and had many surgeries. And so during times you trust the Lord, your faith goes up a little bit. I remember during internship, I was working 115 hours a week, no time for spiritual anything. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard when you're going through so much training and you're, you have so many demands on your life. But try and, and maintain really a habit of staying close with the Lord and staying in fellowship with other believers is really critical. Uh, a lot of times people are going out to the mission field and they want to start raising support and they realize, my pastor, has, I never even met my pastor in person. You know, I see him up there, but he doesn't even know me. Get engaged. You know, listen to God's voice, do disp- disciplines, but engage others. I would highly encourage you to find someone who can be your mentor, someone that you respect, could be a pastor, could be a family member, could be a missionary, but find somebody to share your journey with even now. Even you're, you're pre-med, you know, what's my, why do I need help? I, I, the, the guidance counselor told me I have to take that course and that course. Find somebody who can be your mentor. I think another thing about, about your generation, I think you appreciate that more than our generation did. We were a little more, I'm going to do this myself. I don't need anyone to tell me how to do it. But you want someone to walk with you in that process. And, and begin sharing even your early journey now. You know, sometimes people are afraid to say, I think I might want to be a missionary. Because what if you don't? And people say, ah, she was going to be a missionary and she copped out. Don't be afraid of that. I mean, just be honest and vulnerable, saying, I'm, I'm exploring this, and I hope, and I wonder. And sharing your journey then means, ah, oh, yeah, I remember Andrea, she told me this five years ago, that God was preparing her even pre-med, and now she's going. So proud of her, I'm going to get behind her. So begin sharing your journey so that those people then can become your prayer partners. Our 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 partners, as we started, were the people that went through all the ups and downs of our daughter's uh, surgeries and recoveries. And then she eventually had a heart transplant and then passed away at age seven. 
God used that experience in many, many ways. That's too long a story to share. I'd be happy to share individually. But use that story to give us confidence in his ability to care for us even when things are bad, but also to connect us with the body of Christ in a way that, that we had a team of champions. And when we raised money for our first two years there, it took six weeks for us to raise all the money we needed for two years because we had that, that group of people who knew us and were our cheerleaders. And if you think about start, starting to create that now, if you do it, it's like, well, I'm going to the field in eight months. I need to start creating some deep friendships of people who know me well. You know, you can't do that. That takes time. So start now. This place right here, this meeting, when I talk to people on the field and they hear their story about how God called them to Africa, I would say uh, probably more times than not, GMHC was a part of that story. That I met those people, and then I went to GMAC, I met those people, and then, you know, now I'm here in Burundi, you know. Uh, and so follow, meet people, follow up on leads, be aware of what God's doing, what organizations are doing. And as you're aware, then you start learning where are the places that you can serve. These, these uh, um, sheets that he gave you and uh, the website for GMHC has some tools to help you do that. Um, there are many tools for for contact management and stuff, but try and keep a list. You know, you can do it on your device or on a piece of paper. A list of people who you want to be your prayer partners, who, people who might be able to support you. Start collecting that information uh, so that you've got that list when you when you and start communicating. Make sure they get a, a Christmas newsletter or something from you, and saying. You know, I'm still praying about what God may do after I'm done with my nursing training. That, those kind of messages really help lay the groundwork for your support later on. Now to educational debt. Um, back in the 80s, um, one of my mentors, uh, uh, Dr. Um, I almost said Dan Diamond, Dan Fountain, uh, was is a doctor in Congo and began realizing that they're not getting healthcare missionaries like they used to. And he did a fellowship year where he went to the Billy Graham Center by Wheaton and did research on why is it that we're not seeing healthcare missionaries come to the field anymore. There were many reasons, including decreased commitment from churches and from, uh, from sending organizations, but the number one reason for people not going was educational debt. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it used to be you could go to college for $1,200 a year, you know, and now that doesn't even pay for your books. And so uh, he actually then approached um, David Topazian, who was the president of CDMDA at the time, a dentist who had worked in South America, Central America, and um, told him these data, some hard data about why people aren't going. And, and David and he then founded what's called Project MedSend, which was actually a ministry under the umbrella of CMDA to intentionally raise money to pay back the debt for the people that were God's, God was calling to the field. I don't think they could have imagined how important that was and the impact that that could have had. I talk, I've talked with uh, a, a missionary surgeon, I think it was last year at this conference, and he said, uh, there are three, three uh, major things that have happened in medical missions in the last 25 years that have really, really transformed what's happening. And one of those is MedSend, that uh, getting rid of that debt has liberalized, has allowed opportunities for people to go to the field 
who wouldn't have gone before. And, and I was proud because I was a, I'm a grant recipient at the time I was volunteering with them. And, and as we look at the statistics, um, this is an old slide. I need to get this updated. It, we've supported more than $18 million of educational debt and participated in sending over 650 uh, health providers of all kinds throughout the world. Um, other data is very hard to get, but and, and this is an underestimation of the impact. It says more than a million, hundreds of thousands heard the gospel, tens of thousands uh, um, made decisions for Christ. Understates the broader impact that healthcare missions is having in in the the world, the unreached world. There are people who are able to go where others have not gone, and disciples being made there in um, places that are the neediest with the, the poorest health outcomes. Mission hospitals are core to providing health care for the poor. And God is working through the church and working through education programs to really strengthen the church to meet its obligation to care for health care needs. This is just a little idea of where, where the MedSend people are. This is the cadres. So you can see almost half of people we send are physicians, um, and the next biggest group is nurses. Oh, I didn't put the slide I wanted to. But about 43% of the people that we're send well, uh, over 50% of the people we're sending now are women. Yay for women. Uh, and 40% of the people we're sending are going to what we would consider creative access countries. So the creative access means you can't go there as a missionary. You have to go there as a physical therapist or as a doctor or as a dentist. But they're going being sent by a mission organization with the intention of exploring how God will use them to help to uh, evangelize, disciple, plant churches, grow churches. Um, and, and that's a sign of really, I think, you know, in a sense, meet what, what God's heart is to get the gospel to everybody. But I think that also how God is uniquely calling your generation to go places that are difficult. You are more willing, more globally minded. There's greater strategies around reaching people who haven't heard about Christ. And healthcare is an amazing way to do that. Um, the way MedSend gets engaged, really, once you have found a sending organization and you at least have been approved to go with them. We do have people, because we are networked with over 50 uh, sending agencies, we have a sense of who's working where. So if you say, hey, I would love to go to Bangladesh, you know, we could say, okay, well, I know some people working in Bangladesh. You might want to contact those people and those people and facilitate that. So we're happy to be, you know, help connect you, and this is a great place to connect. But we come in when you've been accepted. You go to our website, which is, I should have copied that. It's just www.medsend.org. You could guess it almost. (laughs) And you go down to apply. So there's a simple application on there to start with just to make sure you meet the requirements that you're going with a sending organization to an underserved area. And then there's a little longer application that includes... um, um, pastoral reference and a little bit about your testimony and where you would be serving, asking some financial information. They do look at financial stewardship. We have a a committee that recommends to the board and the board approves. And there are some people we felt like, you know, this person I think is really struggling with 
financial stewardship, and there may be some requirements. But if you've been a good steward, you've limited your debt, uh, lived in relatively normal or even simple lifestyle, and, and the calling is clear, very few people are denied uh, um, funding. And we uh, then, as you are sent, MedSend then sends you this wonderful piece of paper. I've signed many things in my life. This is my favorite one, the durable power of attorney for MedSend to pay my loans <laughs> while I'm serving abroad. I had to think about that for a nanosecond, and I signed it. And, uh, it. and as we went, they started paying on our educational debt. At the time, this was in the, right around 2000, they had more money than people to send. And so they actually paid it off faster than even they had said. So in eight years, I got a letter saying your debts are gone. And that was a wonderful letter to get to. Generally, the payment period that we set is based on the minimum payment as well as the total debt. If you have a greater debt, it will be a longer repayment period. It's usually 10 years. might go to 15 or 20, depending on the structure of the loan. But the, the main concept is that education, now we won't pay off your, your uh, Mercedes or <laughs> your uh, credit card debt, but all educational debt is covered. And most of the other organizations that send you will say you need to be out of consumer debt. So as you're preparing, be thinking about that. If you're buying a car, you say, I'd really love to have a Tesla. <laughs> That's the car I tend to lust after. And, 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 but there's no danger of me buying a Tesla. <laughs> uh, instead, you get a, a 92 Accord. You know, it'll do, and you're not getting in debt. So do all you can to stay out of debt, keep a simple lifestyle, um, but also the, the key thing about why we're here is to make sure that you, as you're going through undergrad and going through your professional training, that you don't start saying, well, I guess it's not realistic for me to follow what God's calling me to do, to be a missionary, because of all my debt. Debt should not be the obstacle. Often we, we recommend that, that the allied health professionals and nurses get some practical experience after, after your training, uh, just so you make sure your skills are good, but don't let debt be the thing that keeps you from going, even right after training. Doctors, I would say we tend to encourage physicians to go as soon after residency as possible, if not you know, getting your diploma and getting on a plane. <laughs> because I think in particular physician lifestyles, as you start getting involved in a physician group, you start getting sucked in by, by high salaries um, and by lifestyle choices. And so often uh, we recommend that a resident, even during residency, starts exploring how to go. Um, Samaritan's Purse has a program called the Post-Residency Fellowship that allows you to go without having to raise all of your money before you go. I would strongly encourage those of you who are thinking about long-term, is during that process, if you go with Samaritan's Purse, affiliate with an organization, start raising your money. And they'll encourage you to do that as well, that, uh, uh, that you can say, I'm going to go with SIM probably or with AIM or surge, whatever, um, and I, I don't have all my money, but I'm going to go to a Samaritan's Purse Hospital because they have a group, I don't know, it's 20, is anyone here from Samaritan's Purse? 27, 30-something hospitals that they already know, and they have other missionaries there to mentor you. 
Um, and what we've seen is some people will use that as sort of a, a, a fellow. I mean, it's called a fellowship for a reason. It's a fellowship to learn how to do practical on-the-field missionary service. Some people end up staying where they were assigned for their post-residency fellowship. Some people then use that as a launching pad to go somewhere else and, and apply the skills that they've learned. But that's one way to go faster. I would still encourage you that you should start raising funds so that at the end of that two years, if you're like, I love this, you don't have to come back and spend a year trying to find money to go again, that you start the process of developing that support. Um, so that it, sometimes when I talk to people, it's like, okay, what's the catch? What do I have to do? I have to commit for 20 years. I have to give my firstborn child. It happens. It, it, MedSend is here to remove that, that burden of debt. Um, that's all. I want to just allow a little, few minutes for some questions now. Do you guys have any specific questions about either going to the field or about how MedSend works? Yeah. Yes, that uh, do. I don't know how many people know about public service loan forgiveness. I mean, there's two programs, two federal programs. Um, public service loan forgiveness is one where you can sign up, at, and if you're working for a nonprofit organization for 10 years, uh, and you keep up with your paperwork, theoretically, at the end of 10 years, they'll forgive all your federal debt. Um, Trump and DeVos are trying to kill that program, but are being unsuccessful. There's been a couple of court cases that have upheld the obligation for the government to meet its obligation uh, as long as you finish your paperwork. Unfortunately, only a few percentage of people who qualify and have applied for finalization, because now it's been about 12 years, only a few percent have actually had their loans removed. It, I, I would reassure people, if you're already signed up for the program, just to stick with it. And what you can do is then, <clears throat> if you're working for a nonprofit now, some residencies are considered that, is that you can transfer that nonprofit to the mission-sending organization. And then your, um, your minimum payment is actually quite low because usually they also use the, the income-based repayment. And we've encouraged people to do that who are already signed up for it. I've, I'm a little conflicted about it because during that 10 years, your, your uh, interest continues to go up. And if you were to not make it to 10 years and come home early, you've got all that to pay back. Whereas the person who went straight with MedSend at least has made some progress paying their debt. People that are new, I think that's part of the discussion we have with people. What is it that makes the most sense for stewardship, for making use of it. I would encourage those who are signed up to stay with it. Make sure you fill out your paperwork to, so you don't lose that as a potential benefit. It's better to have the government write off your 200000 than for us to use that money to pay what they would pay. Um, but those who aren't signed up for it, you know, make sure that you're looking for other opportunities. Don't just count on it. I, you know, a lot of it depends on what happens. Vote. <laughs> Go out and vote. I'm not going to say anything political, how to vote, but just vote. Um, the, but I think, it, and also communicate to your, uh, your Congress people um, about how important this income base, I mean, this uh, public service loan forgiveness is. I've done that and to my senator, uh, who is actually on the Foreign Relations Committee and on the Appropriations Committee. So um, communicate that, because it's an important thing, both for 
and I, and I neglected, actually, I'm sorry, to, I revealed my bias to foreign missions. Uh, um, MedCent also does support people who are serving domestically in um, Christian uh, ser- uh, um, clinics that serve the poor in the U.S. There's an br- umbrella organization called the Christian uh, C- Community Health Fellowship, CCHF. They're, they're in the in the middle down at the bottom. There are CCHF clinics where nurses and doctors can work, and you would also then qualify for income, for loan repayment from MedSend if you're working for one of their clinics. They're sort of the sending organization for domestic missionaries. Are there questions? Well, I mean... Uh, this is a government program, but we help actually the missionaries who are on the serving the, on the field to do all the paperwork they need to do to keep that current while they're serving on the field. So we have have staff that are. I mean, I, I still it's a mystery to me how you, the income based repayment for most missionaries is a zero payment. So I don't know how you you send them a check for zero. I don't know, but there's something that our people do. I don't I, I don't know that. Maybe Doug knows that, but. They keep you up to date with the government program so that you don't lose that as, a, as an option. This one here. Um, so out of all the applicants that apply, how many receive the grant? The, generally, the, when you go to – there's a process. There's some people who inquire, and they're not going with a ascending organization that is one of our members or something like that. And then there's a committee that, that just does an interview. Very rarely, I don't know if we actually have statistics, um, would that committee, you're on that committee. Uh, 95%. Yeah. So, I mean, occasionally in that conversation, something comes up that the sending, uh, it's often something the sending organization didn't know. You know, like, did you know that this person has, uh, you know, a whole bunch of credit card debt or that, you know, they've, struggled with substance abuse and maybe they need to have some counseling first to make sure that they're not putting that risk. It's a rare thing and it's almost unheard of when the committee makes a recommendation to the board to, to that someone be supported that they say no. Um, there has been a couple of cases of clear financial irresponsibility uh, and that has been a case sometimes, and that's usually something the committee identifies, and they and they recommend not supporting. Or and usually it's not that oh we forget this person. Usually they work, they talk with them to say, okay, why don't you work, and if you can get this down by a hundred thousand, and God clarifies this that maybe you know there's a plan. Doug Doug is one of our board members and also our global ambassador. Yeah, and I, I, I would say even right now, if you're not tithing, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very anti-legalistic, uh, but I have experienced God's blessing from tithing. I mean, you read Micah and says, test me in this and see if I won't just pour out blessings on you. God does call us 
to give of the tithe. Actually, the tithe is the base. We should be giving over and above the tithe. And when you're making, you know, $600 a month <laughs> in whatever job you're doing as a student, it's say, well, I'm going to give $60 away. I won't be able to go to Chick-fil-A. But God blesses you, you know. And so be obedient in your finances, at least 10%, and look for opportunities to be generous and see what God does. God is going to provide for you. Don't worry. Yeah. Any other questions? Thank you. I, I, I should have I should have said that. There's a minimum requirement of an intention to go for two years. The idea is we're not here to support short-term trips for people. We're here to, to really promote long-term. long-term. We would prefer 20 years, but um, a minimum of two years uh, intention. There are some people, something happens, and they have to come back, health problems or whatever, and it's not like we're going to make you pay us back for what we've already paid. And and for and then you you get put on this repayment. So if you go and you go for seven years, and we've paid you know forty percent of your loans, when you come back, the, you notify us, and then we usually give people three months or so to get settled with their new job, and then you basically just take back paying what you were before uh, on a on a monthly basis. Yeah, the first grant is four years. That's right. Suggesting that. Yeah. 24 months in a day, then I'm coming home. Yeah. I mean, really, we want to, to promote and encourage long-term service. And that's one of, one of the several reasons we actually don't pay loan repayments for people doing the two-year post-residency fellowship. First of all, Samaritan's Purse has a lot more money than we have, and they do pay that for people. Um, but also, we would want to say, you know, that if you're staying longer than that and you're committing to longer-term service, that's where we want to come in. Any other questions? Yeah. Yep, and also if you come back for a scheduled furlough. So most organizations will send you for three or four years. You come back even for a year. I had two times during our 16-year, we came back for a full year. They pay while you're on a scheduled furlough. If you were to come back and say, okay, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to work for a while, then I go back, you know, we would hand it back to you, and then you'd have to reapply. But we would already know you, and the chances certainly would be high that you would be accepted, and we would encourage that. We would encourage that. Okay, I, I, I want to honor the time. I'm, I'll stay here uh, and, uh, and take any questions. I have some, some brochures if you want to take some with you. Our website has all of the partners that we affiliate with. Anyways, God bless you guys.